Kia ora katoa, uh, T3 community. Uh, my name's John, it's great to be coming to you again with another uh, Territory 3 webinar and um, really excited to be joined by Eric Seidebelt from Mevo this morning. Eric, kia ora. Hey, ata mahalie. Uh, good to be with you, John, and everyone online. Hey, so, um, you know, as is sort of traditional with this, uh, we really want to make it sort of a, a, a live conversation. So, folks, there is the ability to um, put your questions into the Zoom Q&A function. Um, we usually have a bit of commentary going on in the comment section, but if you do have a specific question, please put that into um, Q&A and we'll stop uh, to answer those and, and have a look at those in about the 30 minute mark. And then just before we finish, to make sure we get to uh, whatever I wanted to get out of this uh, webinar. So um, it's uh, it's really going to be interesting, I think, going through this conversation, Eric, because there's so many sort of facets of the business and your journey that mm. I think a lot of startups are thinking about. But um, before we start to unpack that, it would be great for you just to tell us a little bit about yourself as a human and uh, and the Mevo journey so far. Yeah, cool. Well, um. Let's see, a bit about me. So uh, born in California, but raised in Motueka. Um, did, a, did a whole bunch of things, including, you know, some time off skiing and the classic OE and whatnot. Um, and had, had the good fortune to live both in Melbourne and um, Vancouver uh, during that time. So I got a really great experience to see two cities going head for head for the world's most livable city, which um, <laughs> after growing up in a place like Motueka, you can imagine was quite a change. Yeah. Um, and thought, by God, like cities, one, the, the majority of the world's gonna live in a city. And um, two, they're just the greatest opportunity to have a positive impact on people's lives and, and the environment as well. Um, so tucked into a, um, a degree, basically studying urbanism, but in New Zealand, you need to do that by way of, um, well, I did environmental studies and, and human geography um, and looking at the systems that, that build out cities. Um, and you know, a few other bits and pieces, some corporate strategy, took another company through a 10X revenue growth in 18 months um, before starting Mevo, and then tucked into it with uh, some, got some good friends on board who are just you know, some of the most wonderful, intelligent humans I know, um, and got dug in and, and making change and basically throwing together this experiment to see if we could imagine a company that was regenerative and you know, kind of, brought our cities together instead of and our environment together instead of pulling it apart very cool very cool and you know so there's there's a there's a lot to unpack around that just in terms of your mission and vision i love the idea that you know it's an experiment around regenerative i think any founder yeah, who's yeah. the adventure is not an experiment probably uh not not front footing it enough um i mean you know your, your thoughts about you know taking that sort of experience and, and driving it into transportation, you know, electrification. Um, what, what drove you down that path when you're thinking as founders of, of where to sort of head for that sort of um, experiment? Well, I guess probably I'd love to, I'd love to talk into that, but I'd love to share just with the audience a little bit about Mebo so everyone knows what, what we're talking about, if that's cool. So cool. yeah, and in a little 140 year old house on Marion Street in Wellington, central Wellington, um, there's this group of brilliant driven humans, quite a small group of humans working together um, to deliver what we believe is like an inevitable future. So this idea that if you, if you think about, you know, buying a, buying a CD or a DVD, that was ownership. 
and technology supported the change to access over ownership. And now everyone has Netflix or Spotify, right? And we think the same thing driven by urbanization and, and technology and largely environmentalism too is happening for transport. So the change to access is kind of inevitable. And um, you know, we, this, this little group of, of brilliant humans are working together in this teeny little house on uh, in Tiara in Wellington to deliver this, this inevitable change to the world. And our mission is to create more beautiful and livable cities by providing a better alternative to private car ownership. So that's what Mevo is. It's an app that people, companies, organizations, and individuals have access to a network of cars, kind of like the scooters. You can grab them, the closest one to you, drive it for five minutes, five hours, five days, whatever, um, and drop it off when you're done and not worry about it. So it saves tons of money and, and you know, we're climate positive. So like I was saying before, it's an experiment to see if a company could be regenerative. Um, and we think the market's pretty big. I mean, not even touching on North America. We just recently did a market study of New Zealand. It's about 4 million vehicles in New Zealand of the light vehicles. We think we could probably replace about 25% of them, a quarter of the market. Um, and so that's just huge. That's hundreds of thousands of cars taken off the road. Um, and it, it, we think just the New Zealand business is probably worth about in maturity 1.5 to 2 billion annually. Um, so it's, it's a cool time to be, to be working and we're just, you know, we kind of regularly do 5% month to month growth, which is quite cool. Um, but why, why cars, why we thought transport was a good place for, for being regenerative and testing out this theory. Um, we kind of did a, a backwards study we went where where is the biggest impact happening negatively? Because I'm dyslexic, so I really like problem solving and finding wicked problems that are, are a big old challenge to solve and taking that problem and turning it over to make it the solution. That's usually how I break these things. Um, and we go, well, housing, transportation, and FMCG, food and, and beverage and whatnot, um, those are the three largest spend categories in an individual's budget. Um, your house is your single largest purchase traditionally in your life and your car is your second the house as we kind of painfully know in new zealand appreciates really fast <laughs> and uh your car depreciates really fast like we're talking they're used four percent of the time and and they lose 40 percent of their value in the first year doesn't sound like an asset to me and we went well if that's where the money is that's also probably where the impact is houses change over every hundred years cars every 20. So big spend category, rapid change, and just a abysmal benchmark to compete against, which is kind of what you want. Like you want to go into go into a fight knowing you're going to come out better off, right? So um, yeah, that's we we took it that way and have just been taking an obstacle as a way approach. So we go, why isn't this happening? First one was city policy. So we went in and worked with some some good people in uh, Wellington City Council and and delivered that. And then we went well. Why now? And it's, you know, then onboarding and financing and all, you know, one problem at a time. Yeah, very cool. And how long have you been going now? So we put our first cars down December 2016 and we started with three cars um, and some pretty rubbish tech. But, you know, if you're not embarrassed by your first first go, then you waited too long, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and happy five year anniversary. That's um, oh, well yeah, above thanks. Uh, 80% achievement level. Um, so flicking to founder mode, Eric, you know, those first five years, what uh, what first comes to mind when you think about the biggest challenges actually getting Mevo to, to its five-year anniversary? 
Look, honestly, I, I think oh, it will come as no surprise here. Um, funding is, is super challenging and it's not that you can't find money. I think, you know, in, in terms of New Zealand startups, we've done pretty well. I'd say we're, I'd probably benchmark ourselves as middle of the range when it comes to funding. You know, there's people who've done worse. There's certainly people who have done better too. Um, but I think not only is it finding money, it's finding the right money to come on board because, you know, which investors have the values, not just believe they have, but know how and ability to deliver on the values that you have in line with you, with what you want the company to be. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll shout out Brooke and Layton and the team that shares these. They've done, an, I, I think, a much better job than us on this one um, and an exceptional job at finding investors who want to grow a very, very valuable company. Mm. And some of that means generosity, which, you know, seems a little back to front, but it's like, hey, investors who go, we want the founders to keep really big amounts of their shares so that they can continue to raise really big amounts of capital and not be too diluted and create too high of a risk um, for you know founder flight and things. And that's really challenging. So getting enough cash to grow the company big and fast without creating really massive risk. And there's just not that many investors we've come across in New Zealand um, who really have that. And it just creates pain and headache down the road for recaps and messy things like that uh, and having to redo work instead of just focusing on building. So that that's the key thing. And, you know, I think John, I was telling you just before um, we jumped on, I'm planning to spend half my time in North America next year. A lot of that's just about finding big chunks of funding to grow really fast with values that are aligned to big impact. Yeah. Yeah. And I see, yeah. Uh out of the COP uh, summit now, there's, there's sort of a trillion dollar commitment to, um, to climate related investment too. Mm. So seems like a, a good time it's, to begin. Yeah, about. yeah, I think, I think so too. So um, investment is, you know, one of the biggest topics we talk about, you know, um, probably not so openly really um, as founders because there's a lot mm. of a lot of things and a lot of anxieties around that. I mean, you've got an investor base now. Um, any sort of uh, thoughts in hindsight or things, you know, if you were talking to someone who was raising for the first time, other than, you know, totally agree, looking for the, mm. the wrong investor? Look, I think it's, um, I, I've kind of coined this the, the crowded house effect, although I think you could easily, easily coin it the um, flight of the Concords effect, or there'd be plenty <laughs> of other examples. Um, Early on, I used to I used to talk to other founders earlier in the journey. I'd just say, don't start a company in New Zealand, which is a little defeatist. And I don't really like saying that because this is my home and I love it, right? Um, I'd, I'd say just international investors have the best track record. So if you look at any of the really great New Zealand success stories, the investment's almost always led by international investors. And then... New Zealand investors crowd on. Um, and so why I say crowded house or fly the Concords is fly the Concords used to tour around New Zealand and barely get people to turn up to shows. Yeah. And they're bloody funny. They're great, right? Clearly. Um, and then they got signed by HBO, obviously, and went and toured the US and now they can pack out a stadium pretty much. Same material, just international validation. So I think it's one of those one of those funny cultural legacy things we've all got, and I've got 
personally, I, I see myself do things that align with this sometimes and I have to try and catch them and weed them out. But um, so, you know, I'm not throwing everyone else but myself under the bus on this. I'm totally owning that, that cultural debt as well. Um, but we're really good at backing things that internationally are validated. We're really not that good at backing things properly, I think, that are great that aren't validated internationally. So I, if I was going to go back I, and start again, I'd just jump on a plane, spend time overseas with overseas investors, and then bring those investors, like bring that story back and bring the rest of the, the community along. Um, so there's a few funds, I think, that are starting to lead in New Zealand with more of a, a high growth, big aspiration approach. And that's just so welcome. And, you know, definitely want to celebrate all those, all those people who are, are taking that approach in New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you identified earlier, I mean, your market, even in New Zealand, with the trends and things that you're, you're seeing around vehicle usage is, is a billion dollar market, right? Um, so I think there's quite a lot to that for founders, you know, obviously Global mm. Asperger, it brings some big numbers, but also a lot of problems to solve locally. Um, one yeah. of the things uh, I, I wanted to ask you in terms of your, your shareholders, you, you have a corporate as one of your shareholders? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've got Z Energy um, soon. I believe we'll, we'll soon be calling them Z Energy owned by Ample, but time will tell on that one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, interested in that, obviously a different dimension to a traditional sort of venture capitalist or private equity house. Any, mm. yeah, any tips or thoughts around the differences? I mean, I imagine to your point about getting overseas in the crowded house theory, you know, having, having a corporate with that face would probably be quite a positive thing. Well, what I'd, what I'd say, I was talking to someone I, I think a lot of who's got a lot of experience and you know, has done a couple of publicly listed companies and, and otherwise internationally and has a really strong tie to New Zealand is from here. Um, high growth funds, are focused on high growth opportunity. Now they manage risk, obviously, but um, they're, they're, they'll go out, they'll do a market study, they'll imagine what can be what, and then how to build it and how to manage risk along the way is a part of it, but certainly not the key focus. So, so funds who are used to building high growth companies have that mindset and that mindset enables them to do it, right? Um, as, as a rule, instead of speaking specifically. Um, a lot of corporates are really good at managing risk. And if you look at their governance structure and the key to find, you know, the risk register is one of the most important things that they manage. Um, now, they have some room, room for growth, but they're largely focused on kind of iterative small market capture. You know, there's the odd outlier, but as a rule, they're, they're just manage the risk and, and take little opportunities as they can and things like that. Um, so... You know, one thing when we when we took our Series A, which was a two point one million dollar raise, and and Zed led, one of their stipulations was we needed to stay in Wellington instead of expanding into Auckland. Um, that's a risk mitigation, and uh, it it was what we needed to do, and we agreed to do it at the time, and and that's that's an interesting course, um, but that's very different from taking a high growth mindset fund lead investor who says, actually, you're looking for 5 million. We think we should give you 15 and we think you should speed this runway up. So I think it's just, again, about having like that value alignment early on um, and being really discerning, which I think, you know, I, I think it's one of those interesting ones. So 
I guess the question is, what are their values? As it is, it if they say, "Hey, we're we're in it to learn," that's cool. Um, but are you in it to learn, or are you in it to grow a really bloody big company? Yeah. So, just being being really discerning about those those things would be the advice I'd give myself earlier. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Mm. And, you know, I, I think um, that there's also a timing thing around. You know, when you put the hammer down on growth when you're still kind of figuring things mm -hmm. out. It is pretty challenging to get an investor that, I mean, well, it has to be a seasoned investor to see the sort of ups and downs of, of, of that sort of drive. Um, a lot of folks in our community, are, and I was just listening to um, an economist, Tony Alexander, this morning, mm -hmm. you know, talent, love to hear your views on that. Um, not just here, but obviously starting to think about the US. I mean, we're seeing what some would call a wacky sort of, post you know uh, peak of COVID crisis where unemployment is actually at all-time lows and and it seems to be the big uh, answer for most founders about um, path to growth outside of investment what are, what are your thoughts oh uh, look I mean we've got we've got this fundamental leading value that we run the company with which is um, uh, kindness is key so you know, we've got a pretty clear stack of values that we run most of our material decisions through um, as a decision-making process. Um, in terms of, of how that relates to talent, find really smart people and back them. Um, and what we've found is they don't necessarily come from the expected places. We're not, we're not necessarily, actually, we're not looking for people necessarily who have gone out and done it a bunch of times before because chances are they think they know the answers already. And the truth of the matter is for us, at least, I assume for most startups, um, you don't, no one knows the answer. You go in and you try and you get everything wrong. And then you, 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 know, you do it again and you get 80% wrong and then 60 and then 50, and then all of a sudden you're getting it 90% right, but you didn't know the answers going into it. And so we've got you know, people in our team who aren't necessarily seasoned pros. You know, they're young, super bright, super driven, incredible humans who just dig in and figure figure shit out oh sorry i don't know if i can swear on this one um so <laughs> so um i mean just just backing backing good humans i think is the key thing um we've never had a problem with acquisition uh we don't have a a, a massive team you know so that that probably helps um but yeah definitely seeing seeing the impacts of inflation on on salaries and things like that and i think that's again where startups are just so lucky in the sense that we've got esop we can play with you know and so you're you're giving people it becomes their company and that's a really different story i heard um another econ economist speaking about what i think in in time will be called the great resignation yeah so, you know, the number of people ditching jobs that are seemingly meaningless for companies with meaning. And so if you lead with not to not to be too cliche, but, you know, Simon Sinek's a, a pretty smart guy for and recognized for a reason. If you lead with why, um, that's a, we've found that to be a really important draw card for not only bringing people in, but then the culture afterwards and why we turn up to work and how we support each other. Yeah, yeah, no, super important. And so, I mean, sort of a, a, a sort of a why someone is attracted to a company or why someone stays with the company is, is just increasingly, uh, particularly for the younger talent, uh, seeming mm. to be around sustainability. 
and I'm particularly intrigued with with your views on this because you're a business that's you know really got that front and centre at your value proposition at the front end of the market, but obviously mm. you know the views and as you said earlier the the drivers behind Mevo are sort of contributing positively to that to that change around our approach to climate and sustainability. So, you know, from a founder point of view, and we talked a little mm. bit about it in the green room, you know, what, what are your sort of key principles or key thoughts around that building a, a company that really demonstrates and activates that sustainability approach? Yeah, I think work from the endpoint backwards, right? Like what, what do we need to be doing as a global society and then what part can can your company play and just being you know kind of similar to what you would if you were a marketing team like you know who's your who's your key demographic what's your key offering and how do you go after it well we're the same in impact you know we've narrowed down you know right now urban centers light vehicles um and really the densest part of urban centers we can we can have a massive impact and it's not a, you know, has to be perfect from day one. You know, we still run petrol vehicles, um, but we measure full life cycle. So production, shipping, on-road and end-of-life emissions. We committed to reducing inline with science-based targets and we offset more than 100%. So then it's not, the end point isn't in net emitting. It's not net zero. So it's not like we've just gone and cleaned up our own mess and said, great, that's, you know, cool which should be celebrated, but it's a stepping stone. We've gone, actually, this company needs to be regenerative. So every time someone takes a trip using Amiibo and call it, you know, imagine this is every time someone drinks a cup of coffee or every time someone buys a sweatshirt or insert your company's, you know, solution here, the net impact is regenerative. It's reversing the negative impacts that, you know, delivered the Anthropocene. The, the time of human impact, right? So we've we've just gone, well, that's what it's gonna have to be. And even if no one else in the world is doing it, which was the, you know, largely the case when we started, you know, there were people talking about being zero carbon, but no one, no one was using the term um, climate positive for this. Uh, and now there's kind of a growing number of companies. I, I got bananas at the supermarket the other day and they had a little climate positive badge on them. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I like that, you know? Um, so that's been the big thing. And, you know, I know from our team and from our customers, that's really important to them. You know, that, that changes the whole equation. Yeah. Cause then, then profit is just, it's a byproduct a really important one, you know, fundamental to getting investment and, and funding everything and whatnot. But as, as we move it, it's moved down this path. It's a, it's a secondary to doing good work and delivering good impact. And I think that's a really nice place to live as well. Yeah, totally. And sort of being a historian by academic training, it's quite fascinating to me how many mm. of the companies success stories. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Um, how cool. Yeah, I think it's quite cool. I haven't used it yet, but you know, um, I think <laughs> I think, that, think you probably use it every day. But a lot of the companies are right, decades old, actually. When you when you drive into the values and, and that, they've been pretty mm. positive, both from a societal and an environmental point of view, for a long time. And that sort of you know attracted and sort of the labels and the sort of the new sort of elements mm. probably fit quite nicely onto them. A lot of them, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So mm. um, 
you know, with, with that in mind, I guess, um, sort of looking to more of the product, it fascinates me that, you know, you truly are in my view a solutions uh, organisation because you've got hardware and software and you've got to build that into an experience that's going to sort of stave off other alternatives or competition. So, you know, walk us through sort of what are the biggest challenges around, you know, looking to, to be an expert in buying the right vehicles through to, you know, an app that delivers the right experience. What are the, what are the big things for you around that? Yeah, I mean, they say hardware is hard, right? And it is. I can, <laughs> I've got a, a God, uh, the patience and, and fortitude of, of the, our team around that space is great. But it's like hardware policy. So we have to work both, you know, lots of local government. Um, and now we're digging into the national um, policy and legislation space. Um, financing procurement of vehicles, like you mentioned, you just, you just learn <laughs> and recognize you're going to get, get stuff wrong and try to get less and less stuff wrong. And, you know, like we are, our, our gross margin line is a, <laughs> a great metric for how much we've gotten wrong. Uh, Cause you know, early on, we just lost bucket loads on every car, but then we made better purchases and we got better at balancing our network. So we started, you know, with a consumer product, largely the individual. Um, and that's enough in most markets to make it work. But because Wellington's so small, it's kind of constrained us to have to also have a really good enterprise product. So now we're onboarding a new enterprise, big ones too, every week sort of thing. And we're getting, you know, 80, a hundred invites sent out in one go. Um, and that fills up the Monday to Friday, nine to five and then our consumer which has to be brilliant otherwise the whole thing falls over fills up the nights and weekends um yeah. and again i think you know having that belief and then fortitude to go out and be like cool what's the problem i don't know anything about it i didn't know what a general lecture was when i started Nebo. <laughs> you know like i figured you just learn and and find the best people around to to teach you yeah, yeah, cool. I mean, you can't know everything to uh, to a great depth, right? Mm. Um, and I guess something like corporates, which I'm imagining really helps you scale your numbers. I mean, there would have been no point in the roadmap of having that as an early offering because the comfort level wouldn't have been there. But the sort of timing of that stuff's quite crucial, isn't it? Yeah, again, coming back to this risk factor, you know, we didn't have enough cars. We weren't established enough. There's that old adage, right? No one ever got fired bringing in IBM. Yeah. So now that we have cars on every corner, everywhere in Wellington, I went into a meeting. They're like, oh, yeah, a car is parked outside our front office every day and has been for the last year. And it's like, we didn't put that car there. That just happened to be a customer, probably one of their staff dropping it off. Right. Um, that's been a big one. But yeah, we had to get that early early capability and the early, the core, the individual user experience really, really good um, before we could then do the enterprise side, which is consolidated billing, reporting platforms and, you know, bulk upload of, of members and all the, all the things big organizations need to need to have it work. And we're still probably too small for a lot of them because we're not in every major center. So we're, we're planning at the moment how to roll out to, 20 centers around New Zealand in the next three years, um, which then leads into like, okay, well, that's a blueprint for how to take state by state across the US or province by province in Canada. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. and, um, 
you know, you've got another layer there around regulation and compliance because I, I always remember being in San Francisco when BMW trialed something, you know, some years Part ago. Part ago, yeah. Yeah, shut down because I, I saw a car in a local suburb and it had $900 worth of parking tickets on it because, you know, clearly it had run out of battery and, and no one wanted to, to kind of pick it up and, and do anything with it. So um, what have you yeah. learned dealing with regulation and how you sort of run that part of the business? Because it's pretty important, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the short-term answer is patience. Mm. Um, the long-term answer is competition. <laughs> So, you know, we, you, you just have to go out and learn as much as you can. Weirdly, again, I didn't really realize, but when it comes to parking policy internationally, I actually have a bit of a leg to stand on in conversations with, with global experts. Um, wasn't the plan when I went to university to know a lot about parking policy, but sure, I'll take it. Um, I, think, I think the main thing is, just supporting the humans who are doing the work, you know, recognizing them and, and backing them as much as you can. Like, uh, you know, previously associate minister, um, Julian Genta, uh, associate transport minister, um, her office supported central government to do some brilliant work around um, the national policy statement on urban development. And then you've got the government, you know, the ministries and the departments going out and doing the work. And the beautiful thing in New Zealand is you can go meet all those people really quickly. Yeah. Um, but it, we also tend to be a bit slower. Um, so we went over to um, Calgary and they asked us to consult on their parking policy and they turned it around in two weeks. And we're like, whoa, 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 we don't, we're not making a commitment to come here. We want to be really clear and we don't want to <laughs> mislead you. And they're like, no, it was really helpful. Thank you. We've done it. I was like, took me three years to get that done in Wellington. Yeah. So it's it's one of those balances. I think um, you know, there's lots and lots and lots to be grateful for. But sometimes I think as well, we pat ourselves on the back a bit too quickly, and don't because we're not constantly in all the other jurisdictions, and you know, don't have that. So yeah, policy is yeah. a funny place. And timing, right? To your point about Calgary. Um, yeah, I think your point about Cartago, you know. A lot of times anything new gets a few false starts and people try and the timing's wrong and they're a little bit too early. Um, and I think, I think we're seeing that, you know, uh, that's, that's one of the things I think happened with Cartago. And I talked to some of the, um, some of the team who used to run it over there. Um, just a little bit too early on some of it, but yeah, regulation is driving it. You know, COP26 just happened. Those, those changes have to come from somewhere. Yeah, so totally. That was six Tailwind years ago, there. very early. Mm. And an all-electric vehicle too, which I can tell you from bitter experience, can only go one way down to San Jose and then the Caltrain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, so we've got those experiences. Yeah, yeah. We, I think we've all had them with fair EVs. Um, so um, there's a couple of questions that we'll go to, Eric, but um, a selfish one because I'm the mm. interviewer and uh, as the pilot in me. Um, you know, we're talking about things with four wheels uh, running around the city and so forth. What What are your thoughts on when that gets to sort of 500 to 1,000 feet above a city and people are running around like the Jetsons? Oh, well, it's happening quickly and quietly. So, um, yeah, autonomous aerial vehicles um, and vertical takeoff and landing, uh, those are 
those are developing lots and lots of capitals flowing into them. So, you know, we've got Cora, the internationally backed, but currently being developed in New Zealand, led by um, Anna, uh, doing some great work. Um, she's actually just taken chair of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship as well, which is pretty cool. Um, they're just powering away. And I know they've got, a, from what I can tell, a really positive relationship with um, New Zealand regulators. Uh, then you've got Lilium out of, um, I think just near Munich. So pretty crazy all-star all -star board and um, executive. So ex-Boeing execs and things. They just, they just signed a deal with the largest carrier in Brazil. Um, you know, this stuff's coming, but hardware is hard and it takes time and regulation's hard and it takes time. Huge markets, like I said, you know, we could do a billion dollars in New Zealand without being the largest player in the market. Um, but if you look at the pace that these, these assets turn over, you're, you're kind of on a 10 year time scale and you got to get the first ones in the ground and then probably another 10 years to get to kind of early majority and potentially another 10 years to get to late majority. Sharing and connectedness means you could accelerate that. And, you know, yeah. Tony Sieb has done some really great work on that uh, and explaining it. So highly recommend if you haven't already reading some of his reports, they're pretty, pretty optimistic, but they're probably largely on track as well. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Mm. Got some questions here. Um, the first one is from Jan and uh, it is, hi there, does Mevo see a potential in hydrogen cars? once the infrastructure is established around New Zealand or the world? Yeah, actually, so I'll, I'll defer to Mike Bennett's, who I heard speak on the Sharesies podcast recently on, on this topic. Um, and certainly I, I know a number of the researchers behind him who have done some really good work. Um, hydrogen right now, I think, I think he was saying was about three times as expensive to run, right. um, but very promising. So for for New Zealand, I think electric is the short-term solution. Um, and as that technology develops and gets cheaper and cheaper, it will probably first sit really nicely in, in heavy transport. So moving moving trucks around, um, and then we'll see how it goes into light vehicles. Um, but yeah, cool tech for sure. Yeah, cool. Um, this question from Gary. Hi, Eric. Do you have EVs presently? And do customers show any preferences for them? And then sort of it's a three-part question. That the third piece, you know, what are the difficulties in obtaining them? Mm. So we are just about to, in the in the next couple of weeks, I'd say, we'll announce our first battery electric vehicles coming onto the fleet, um, which I'm pretty excited about. I think everyone will be very happy to hear the answer of that one. Um, but I won't give anything away. Uh, we ran plug-in hybrids for a number of number of years. They were the, actually the first vehicles we worked with Ika um, to put 50 plug-in hybrids up, out um, and got thousands, thousands of people to take their first drive in them. Um, they cost more is the short answer. And people do prefer them, um, but they don't like to pay for them. So we, we run this really funny balance. Uh, I, I like it. Um, but it takes explaining where we balance the environmental impact and the social equity impact um, or social equality and access. So if we only put EVs on the fleet, that'd be great. And we could work really well in Takapuna and central Wellington and central Auckland and Remuera. And we wouldn't be doing much good for people who don't have the money to afford them. Um, if we can put affordable petrol cars on for the short term until EVs get cheaper, we can measure and offset more than 
20% of our emissions um, and give people who really benefit from the cost savings of car sharing access to transport that's safe and reliable and doesn't put them in a debt spiral and things like that. Um, and then in terms of obtaining them, uh, yeah, New Zealand's not, not well endowed um, on the global EV supply side. Uh, the moves by government, the regulation has really supported that and that should bolster it. Um, but most of the EVs globally have been going into Europe and North America because there's regulation to support it. Um, so good moves by the government. Um, yeah, yeah, but uh, car vehicle availability is, is really heavily impacted right now by the chip shortage. Um, so that's, that's a big one right now that we're working to overcome. And the last question uh, from Julian, um, before we jump back into uh, some questions from me, is how soon do you see self-driving cars taking over your fleet? And which lands you competing with Uber or right? Oh, so, so you know, which lands you with competing with Uber, right? Question mark. Mm, yeah, great question. Um, so everything we do from the day we launched was focused on building a platform that um, one in a self-driving future. So, I mean, that's an inevitability, but it's it's a wee ways off. I I think 2017, I predicted by 2020, there'd be fleets of kind of, you know, 100 plus vehicles self-driving in the world operating. Um, three years ahead of time, I'll say, I, I called it right because Phoenix and um, where was the other one? Detroit were operating. Um, but in terms of scaling that, was, big problem to solve. We need kind of increased uh, machine learning, increased um, processor power per dollar, you know, um, and development on LiDAR, things like that. So it's, it's still happening. In terms of competing with Uber, well, largely they don't know how to run assets. Um, they don't actually really know how to work with cities. Uh, cities will regulate against uh, zombie vehicles so when we do have autonomous vehicles vehicles driving around in circles instead of parking which you have to pay for um there's a bunch of there's a bunch of value stacks that they don't actually deliver on now they could learn or they could partner and i think that's the direction they're going to go but these these cities are highly individualized and you have to work individually city by city to to really make it work um and like <laughs> for a while, there was a, a big international ride hailing company that had a, um, an enterprise product in New Zealand and their GST didn't sum up properly. And that, that's a pretty material bug to your big enterprise users in New Zealand, um, but it's not big enough to be material for them to solve on the global scale of things. So we'll see. I wonder now that they're publicly listed if they'll fall into innovators dilemma where they keep doing the same thing to keep, you know, delivering returns to investors instead of continuing what made them really successful early on, which was lots of R&D, lots of discovery, lots of experimenting. Um, and so, again, it's about <laughs> what type of organization and what type of structure do you want to be? But there's no, um, there's no one winner in airlines or no one winner in uh, a number of these really, really big industries. Um, they're just too big for that. So yeah, I'd say transport's gonna end up being the same. Very 
Oh well, Julian in the uh, in the chat just said you've convinced him. So uh, so, so nice, thanks, Julian. Obviously discerning. <laughs> hey, so um, flicking back to you as a founder, Eric. Now, and um, this is something I really like to cover because we we just don't like to do this kind of stuff, particularly around sort of health and wellness. Um, you know, what are the things that keep you up at night, and sort of how do you uh, how do you uh, keep yourself well and and you know, yeah. Look, I see, I see this on the founders I've, I've chatted to who are working largely with international investors. They're really focused, the international investors are really focused not only in words, but in actions to, to take this in. So you see founders progressing as they, as they go and there's founder share buyouts so that the founders can go off and buy houses because funnily enough, you might be looking pretty good on paper for your, your founder shares, but that doesn't count when you go for a mortgage, things like that. Um, yeah. So again, uh, the thing, one of the things that keeps me up right now certainly is getting a really good cap table established, getting really good investors around us who do not just say, but also back in really material ways. Um, so that's, that's gonna be my focus, I think, for the one of my focuses for the next six to 12 months and probably forever going on. Um, and then otherwise just getting into the mountains, you know, trying, not to work weekends, you know, five years, you could do it for two years and three years sort of thing. And you, you pretty much have to, but it's not a 10 year journey. You can't work 80 hours a week for 10 years. You'll just, you'll just end up in the hospital. Um, and, and the really challenging thing I reckon is, um, you know, holding yourself to account. So I, I try and, you know, encourage my team to not work crazy hours and to take care of themselves and, then I'll find I'll fall into a something will come up and I'll, I will have just done a 70 hour a week and like, damn it, not, how can I expect them to do it if I'm not doing it? So it's, it's you know, an ever evolving thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think having that culture in the team and then having the people around you to support that. Um, and no one's ever going to get it perfect. We, we certainly haven't. Very cool. Makes sense. Mm. And um, in terms of the roadmap ahead, what are you most excited about for me though? I just, I just love, we had a, we had a big organization um, that just signed up. I, I'm, I don't think I've said this already, uh, but they, they brought on their Wellington team and we have these milestones as companies come in. Um, and one of them is the, the first drive, the first trip on the company account. We always call up and double check to make sure it went well and, you know, solve any problems or misunderstandings if they come up, which luck, luckily are less and less, but this company, signed up, invited their staff, took a trip all within a couple of weeks, which is pretty, you know, used to take us months to get one of these deals across the line. And then they took their first trip and it was two of them. One of them jumped in one of their cars. The other jumped in one of ours. They drove down to Turner's and dropped their car off to sell it and then drove back in one of ours. And I was like, yes, that's going to the PR team. That's great. And so watching in large numbers, rapidly people change their behavior away from private vehicle ownership is is kind of huge like it redefines a lot of the space in our cities when you walk down the road think about all those cars just sitting there and then take 10 of them in your mind and squish them together in one and that's that's what we do we take 11 cars off the road for every car we put down um so just thinking about fundamentally changing our cities and making space for parks and kids and 
you know, I don't know, imagine walking down the street and a row of car parks is replaced with a lawn bowl screen and there's a coffee shop next to it and a bunch of old people hanging out and laughing. Like, that sounds great. Sign me up. So um, yeah, that part. And then just hanging out with my team. They're bloody awesome. Yeah, that's a great story. And it's, um, I guess now that's the gold standard for demonstrable engagement for a new sign-up, right? They actually drive the Mevo to sell their car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was pretty stoked by that one. Yeah, it's pretty cool. See so many. I'm thinking of Mountain Buck in particular. Not not getting at you, Mountain Buck residents, enormously. But you know, a lot of those vehicles they don't really go far. You know, if they've got a residence sticker, they seem to be parked in the same place. Um, I guess for weekends or for you know the odd occasion when you can't walk to wherever you're going in the city. Yeah, yeah. It's a. It's. I always think. Um, I don't know if anyone else watched Mad Men or I. I that a good chunk of my university career was spent watching that, that show. Um, uh, but I, I think the private vehicle ownership model is the greatest feat of modern marketing. Just absolutely amazing that we, we used to have these towns that we could walk in. And then we, we were largely convinced by marketing that we needed to buy cars and they're great. I can understand why people do it. You know, like obviously I run a company with a bunch of cars, so I get it. But then we we all bought cars and we went well we don't have enough space so our cities went you know and then all of a sudden we had to have them because we couldn't walk anywhere ah, incredible feat kind of awful but yeah we can we can have our cake and eat it too with with car sharing i think which is quite nice that alongside with sticks you burn in your mouth and yeah there's a few of them torches of torches of freedom I don't know if yeah. anyone knows the work of Edward Bernays, but that one's worth looking up. Hey, so, um, you know, again, from a founder perspective, if you look back to the beginning of the Mevo journey now, um, five years in, what comes to mind is something that you would have, you know, definitely done differently, if anything, um, sort of starting at that, that, that stage again? Uh, I think I just echo this uh, international investment supported by New Zealand investment as well. Um, I think that that that's the key one. Lots of other little things in there, um, but end of the day, it's more about how we how we go forward. So just keeping those good things. One thing I, I think we did do really well is um, we set up our values. You know, pretty much when it was just the founders and our board, we set up a good board. Highly recommend that. Um, and then just running everything through values. You know, and for us, you know, five years, six years ago when we set the values up. Um, setting kindness as our as a fundamental value has always been been pretty valuable yeah very cool mm. we've got about 12 minutes to run so um it's gone super fast it's been uh, it's mm. been great through these things eric um folks if you've got any last minute questions please fire them uh, into the q a and we'll make sure we get to them before uh, before the wrap up but um really sort of uh looking at the i, I guess sort of you know, the, the, the early founder, Eric, and just perspectives, because we do get a lot of folks on these that are you know, mm. playing with a few ideas, but haven't really decided on one, just know they want to go down this sort of entrepreneurial path. Any sort of gems or frameworks outside of, the, of you know, starting Mevo again that you'd, you'd throw out there? Because I think a lot of folks are keen to hear from people like you about, you know, just that general advice as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing I was reminded of, and I think we actually did a really good job of this early on, but I kind of forgot about it because you get busy in, in execution mode, is just doing your 
doing your basics really well, like, is there a real market? Like, or are you just, are you just being hopeful? Um, and that's okay. Like hope is super important, but hope leads you to find the real market. Um, so, you know, we went out and did a big market study and tested our thesis and we had a core thesis, which we could, could clearly articulate, um, you know, and then, you know, the, the basics that you really just need to have down pat, like what's your competitive advantage? Um, how do you build into that? And then write out your plan. You know, I just, I just redid it recently. So across those, those 21 cities in, in the country, I have month by month, you know, I've got a 10 year plan month by month, city by city detailed. Um, and now we're taking that not only at a high level as a company, but then each of our departments are detailing every month for every city and what, what their OKRs are, their objective key results are. Um, and it's really easy to lose that along the path. And also once you start executing, I, well, for me, certainly, um, I, I run out of time to do that good foundational work because you're busy in the weeds. And uh, so early on, before you've got customers and staff and a bunch of investors, um, yeah, that's that foundational stuff is is going to be you'll be coming back to it for years as as we are. Yeah, cool. And, and I guess just sort of a follow on to that around consumers or customers or end users or whatever you call them in your particular sort of thinking of a venture. I mean, what mm. what at a, at a top line um, have you seen as sort of change? Not necessarily that. Um, well, yeah, I guess the change that's maybe surprised you, we haven't expected in, the, in that consumer behavior that maybe somebody would get value out of um, considering in terms of what consumers were like uh, early in the journey versus yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, to be honest, I'm kind of surprised some of our early consumers stuck with us. Um, you know, we got, we got some things wrong along the journey as you expect. And some of them were super forgiving and just loved our vision and, you know, watched us on the journey and dealt with alarm, like car alarms going off and all sorts of silly things. Um, and for, for us in terms, of, in terms of those consumers, one of the greatest learnings I think we've had more recently is being really clear about celebrating them, but also targeting the right ones. So we recently onboarded a client and their, um, their user profile would sit more if, if everyone knows the, the technology adoption curve. So you've got your early adopters, your early followers, early majority, late majority, and kind of what sometimes is called Luddites or very late adopters is a, a bit more PC way to put it. We, we brought on a client who are further down, the users of are further down on that. And they're just a different kettle of fish, you know, they're not excited by change. They're not excited by the tech. They're not excited by the vision. They just want things. They don't actually want things to change. Um, and it's it's a very different experience. So um, that, that's that been a bit of a, a surprise because we've been living in the early adopter space for so long and you get used right. to the support and the excitement and the engagement. Um, but then, you know, the other thing is we've just always been really product focused. So we're like, we only just now are starting to reinvest in sales and marketing because we had a big sales and marketing budget. You know, we were spending thousands of dollars every month and we cut it entirely. And we said, if our product's not good enough that users rave about it to their friends and bring their friends along, then there's no point. Like just quit now. 
because someone will outcompete you. Um, and that's pretty, I think that's pretty key. So like, that is the thing I love is when I see these like overheard on a bus, my friends will send me a text being like, oh, I heard someone talking about me, but this is what they said. You know, those, those sorts of things, like building yeah. that, that virality of just people getting crazy excited about what you're doing is pretty cool. And we're, we're pretty fortunate to have such awesome users. Yeah. Yeah. It's great validation. We've got, mm. uh, Two questions. Uh, Jesse, uh, to get international lead investors, do we have to physically travel right now is one part of the question, or has investor experience changed lately to be more comfortable with Zoom connections? It's a great question, Jesse. Yeah, look, I gotta be, I, I gotta call myself out here. I don't think I'm probably the best, most qualified person to answer that question because we haven't done it yet. Um, you know, most of our investment, major investments on shore, um, from what I'm hearing from other founders and, and from the community is there's more and more deals being done just over, over teleconference. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'd say you're, you're your own limiting factor. Don't, don't have limiting beliefs on that one. If, you know, someone went to the moon for the first time. So I'm sure you can raise internationally without traveling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything's possible, right? It's just the, yeah. uh, the, 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 the right initial approach. Um, Julian, uh, it strikes me that the business gets unicorn potential really with the self-driving aspect. Um, and so with uncertain timeframes around that, based on a, his first question and your answer there, I'm interested in the investor approach. Do you, do you try and convince an investor, well, I mean, it's really what you believe, I think, you know, do you, mm. do you current model in terms of getting to profitability or you put that as just a stepping stone? So I... Running, running a forecast that we, we update regularly and have done for years, um, you know, that's a, that's a real skill set in itself. And it's safe to say we've, we've gotten that wrong plenty of times too. Sure thing about a forecast is you can 100% guarantee what you put on paper won't happen. Yeah. Um, but look, one of, the, one of the things we've taken is, I believe we've taken a, a more conservative um, forecasting approach basically saying if we can't, if we don't have line of sight on it reasonably, um, we just don't, we just don't put it in because end of the day, it's as a founder, it's your integrity. Um, and it will take some hits along the way. You'll get things wrong and your integrity will be hit by that as a leader and as a founder. Um, so hopefully, you know, you try <laughs> knowing you'll get some wrong, you try and get as many of them right as possible. Um, and with self-driving, our Wellington business is gross profitable today. Yeah. You know, without it. So Uber, you know, that was certainly their early investors, how they pitched it. And they're losing money in the US. You know, New Zealand's one of their only profitable company uh, organizations, right? Because there's not really any competition, not in the same way that you have meaningful competition in North America. Um, they did pitch that dream and then had all the controversy about their self-driving unit and stolen IP and then they sold it, right? So I don't know. I think you need to have a profitable business before that happens. And then you're in a good position for that to, to be picked up um, when that technology self-driving comes through. But yeah, since, since founding every decision we make is how does this stack up in a self-driving world? Yeah, and it's and it's still you know it feels like a good description of it would be early but accelerating in terms of mm. sort of where things are at. 
hey, I'm going to swap places really quick so I can plug my computer in. Otherwise, I'm going to disappear. So bear with me. Sorry about that. Oh, that's cool. We like an action piece just to wrap up. So yeah. that, 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 Welcome to Nelson, everyone. There we go. Yeah, you can, you can give a plug for your space as well, if you like. Oh, yeah, bridge. Oh, well, it actually looks like uh, Eric didn't make it in time to the uh, to the plug. Sorry about that, Eric, for the early early uh, finish. Um, but it's been great having Eric on uh, the webinar, and I'm so glad that he lasted uh, just about through the last two minutes. So thanks everyone for watching. Um, thanks, Eric Seidevelt from Mevo for for being here. And yeah, we look forward to bringing you the next Territory Three webinar next Thursday at ten o'clock. Cheers, everyone.